This podcast is brought to you by Learn Prime. Start your journey to becoming a great developer at learn.thoughtbot.com. Mike, have you ever listened to the podcast? I, I listened to a few of them. The ones about programming are pretty good. <laughs> giant robots smashing into other giant robots. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Giant Robots Smashing into Other Giant Robots podcast. It is Friday, July 12th. My name is Ben Orenstein. I'm here today with Mike Burns and Pat Brisbane. How's it going, guys? Great. Glad to be here. Yeah, it's going fantastically. So, Mike and Pat, uh, today is uh, like ThoughtBot Day. We have three ThoughtBotters on the podcast. Uh, two of us are local. Pat and I are here in Boston, and we are joined by Mike Burns from the Stockholm office. How many hours ahead are you? Uh, we're like 2,400 hours ahead. Uh, we get the news and then we tell it to you. So you're like a hundred days ahead of us. Yeah, basically. Wow. That's impressive. We're, we're six hours ahead. Which means it's, uh, five in the morning, no, four in the morning and it's like bright sun outside. Well, it's always sunny outside. Yeah. Yeah. doesn't set. But soon it's going to be always dark. So I kind of enjoy the sun. Hmm. I believe it. So uh, we wanted to get the three of us together today, or more specifically, the two of you together today, because you guys are the uh, the Thoughtbot Haskell crew. By the way, I just anointed you that. I like it. So um, we want to talk about Haskell. So uh, anybody want to give an overview of the language, kind of just some high-level uh, features and points? Mm-hmm. Maybe start with Pat. Oh, we'll start with me. Yeah. Um, so Haskell is a functional language. I think most people kind of know that. Uh, it's got a strong type system which lends itself to uh, very correct programs, in my opinion, a very rigorous compiler that sort of watches your back and checks your work. Uh, it has lazy evaluation, which is a big thing people seem to like, and uh, that's uh, pretty basic, in my opinion, of it. Hmm. Mike, any other major things that you're a fan of in that language? Yeah, so um, it's a purely functional language, which, dif- which separates it from things like Scheme or ML. Um, so even though the syntax is kind of similar to ML, you can't do, you can't mutate variables in the middle of blocks, and you can't print in the middle of blocks because those are those are impure functions. Mm-hmm. And the definition of an impure function is what? Oh yeah, so so side effect uh, is is the term. So it's a function that doesn't produce the same value every time. So random is a really simple case of an impure function, mm. and so random. Uh, it has special hooks in Haskell for how it works. And when we get into, when we talk about IO, which I'm sure we will, we will talk about how random works. Mm-hmm. And probably we're going to bump into monads, aren't we? Uh, we don't have to. Okay. But we can. <laughs> so, it's, so a function is pure if it always returns the same value given the same inputs, right? That's right. Yeah. Okay. Um, so that's, that pure functional bit is, is, like you said, fairly unique, right? Like there's some other languages. It seems like other languages will embrace functional programming occasionally or partially, but not make it, them, make it a hard and fast rule. Yeah, they don't enforce it in the, in the language itself, which Haskell does, which mm-hmm. I like. Mm-hmm. So it's, it, it's functional programming non-optional. So uh, what kind of stuff have you guys written in Haskell? Pat? Uh, yeah, so uh, I started with a window manager called Xmonad. Uh, which is a tiling window manager for Linux, and it's written in Haskell. And Not the, Xmonad? Well, X-monad? people say Xmonad. It's one of those things, you know, like Linux words that you always read and you never say. Yeah. And then you never know how to say it. All right. So I use Xmonad, and uh, <laughs> I know, sounds weird now. Um, it's written in Haskell, configuration files in Haskell, so um, it allows you to easily write extensions in actual Haskell, which mm-hmm. is which was my introduction to that. And then I got involved in another project that I say incorrectly, 
which I say yesod, and I guess it's yesod. Okay. This is a habit for you. This is a habit, apparently. Right. Um, and that is a web framework, uh, much like Rails, but written in Haskell. Okay. So you've written web apps with Haskell? Yep, both apps and libraries for the framework. Mm. Cool. Mike? Yeah, so I've been playing with Haskell for like 10 years now. So when I started writing web apps, we had Wash, and it was kind of okay. Uh, it wasn't... It wasn't a spectacular web framework. Um, but so lately, the biggest thing I did was the GitHub API. Um, I implemented the GitHub API in Haskell as a library. Um, but I just handed that over to FB Complete to, uh, to maintain. And then I've done a few other API stuff, uh, JSON APIs in Haskell, like uh, Trajectory has a, has a JSON API and there's a library for it in Haskell in oh. case you ever need that. <laughs> that. I'm sure that's extremely handy. A good, that's a good little selling point. We should put that on the landing page. <laughs> so you guys are both uh, filthy Linux users. Filthy, yeah, like. sure. I'm um, sorry to hear that. Do you think that influenced you to use such an ugly programming language? <laughs> I, I certainly think it made it easier to get into. Um, compiling GHC and writing Haskell on a Mac or Windows doesn't sound nearly as inviting as it is on Linux. GHC being the compiler, the compiler for, for Haskell? The compiler for Haskell, yes. Cool. So, so, the, so it seems like... Based on my knowledge of Haskell, there's not a lot, not a ton of real-world use for this. This is one of those languages that's kind of not mainstream. And yet the people that are into it are really into it, kind of like some of the Lisps, mostly before Clojure, maybe even still Clojure. Um, so the benefit that I feel like a lot of people get from these sort of things is it's a great language, it's an interesting language, and it affects your programming in other more mainstream languages that you actually can get paid to write. Uh, have you guys found that? Does Haskell make your Ruby code different? I do believe that that's true. I would disagree that Haskell is not a real-world language. Mm -hmm. um, there is a book called Real World Haskell, which <laughs> walks through the various real-world uses of Haskell. Well, I, I can write a book <laughs> called Haskell is Not Real World. Yeah, well, you can have it peer-reviewed and see how that goes. So an example of real-world use, yeah. that GitHub library that I wrote, I wrote that so that I could generate blog posts for the ThoughtBot blog called This Week in Open Source. The blog post, which I made every Friday, uh, was entirely generated using a Haskell program. Uh, so ThoughtBot had some Haskell code that it was using Nice in the real world. Okay, I'll take it back. Uh, but, and so does it... So, okay, so we've established that Haskell's real world, but <laughs> does, yes. has, this, has working in a functional language changed the way you guys approach problems these days? In other Absolutely. Languages? Absolutely, yeah. Um, just being hyper aware of mutability and side effects mm. um, is a feature that I bring to any development I do. Um, I like Haskell where it enforces not having mutability and not having side effects, but it's also nice to write a language like Ruby where those things are embraced and good, but also being aware of the drawbacks and knowing when to not overuse them. Mm. And, and why, wouldn't, why don't you want to use mutability and side effects? I find it just makes the programs harder to reason about. You know, you look at something that's a black box object that may have side effects or may mutate state, and you don't know what it's going to do when you call that method. Mm -hmm. um, whereas if you look at a Haskell program and you look at the type signature, you know everything there is to know about what that function is going to do. Mm. And I like sort of bringing that quality to other languages so that you can reason about your code and, and know the execution path more clearly. Mm. Mike, would you agree with that stuff? Uh, sort of, except I don't... I, I sort of disagree with your question. Okay. Uh, so I don't believe that there is a big difference between object-oriented programming and functional programming. 
Um, and I have, a, I have a functional background. I was a scheme programmer for a little bit. But when Alan Kay made Smalltalk, which was object-oriented programming, uh, he made it in part so that he could explore the actor model and, um, and separate mutation away from, encapsulate mutation with the intent of removing it entire, entirely. Uh, so that's, that's the fundamentals of object-oriented programming. And when I write objects and when I write methods, I tend to think of that, and I tend to think of passing messages down through methods, um, which is very much how functional programming works, too. Is, isn't functional programming more like a transform of data with functions? That's one way to think of it, yeah. But you're transforming that data by just applying function after function after function, um, whereas in object-oriented programming, you are transforming data by passing messages to data, which pass messages to more data. Um, so it's, it's just a different way of looking at the same idea, really. Um, I would say the biggest difference, uh, if you want to point to one, can be shown in conditionals, where um, in, in places like Haskell or Scheme, the conditional is a part of the syntax, and it returns a value, and its, it's syntax is, is the big point. Whereas in Smalltalk, the conditional was just another message. Hmm. You mentioned that Alan Kay wrote Smalltalk because he wanted to explore the actor model. What is, what is the actor model? Um, so I'm not a professional at the actor model, I have to admit. But it is, so it's a popular discussion point now, especially with Erlang. But it's an idea where you have these separate processes, entities, objects that you can send messages to. And they, they act as cells, as automata that send messages between them. At the time that Ellen did this, it was, an, it was a revolutionary idea. It sounds like you're, you're saying functional programming is not that different if what you're doing is sending messages between data. But what about when those automata are, well, what about the, when those cells look outside themselves at state outside their current, the, the data that they hold? Right. I mean, that's dangerous. Yeah. Right. Um, so in object-oriented programming, that's very dangerous. In functional programming, Sure, that's fair. That's, that's actually a common thing where you will take in a piece of data, dismantle it, and then operate on that data. And so, so yeah, that, that is, there's something called the, uh, the expression problem, uh, which does talk about that, where in, in things like Haskell, uh, you do, it's very easy to add new behavior, but it's very hard to modify the data because all the functions deal directly with the data, and there's no encapsulation going on. Whereas in Ruby, it's the opposite, where it's very easy to add new data, right? So you can add a new subclass, but it's very hard to add new behaviors because it's very hard to add a method because you have to add it to all the subclasses or all the, all the sibling classes. Um, it's more disruptive there. Uh, so I think you both have sort of touched on the Haskell type system a little bit. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about that, Pat? Um, <clears throat> well, I think it's the it's the biggest selling point of Haskell. I prefer it. Um, it is super expressive um, in terms of parameterized types and type classes. Um, I don't know how... I don't know what either of those are. Yeah, I don't know how much of like a, a background. Um, so you, you declare types effectively, um, and they can have a number of constructors, and all of the constructors produce a value of the given type that you've just defined. Okay, and a uh, type would be like... Like person. Okay. Like data person equals person. And it's common to name the constructor the same as the type because mm -hmm. it's unambiguous. Because Java does it. 
Java does it too, I guess. Um, and your person constructor may take an integer for age, let's say. So you would say, you know, person two, and that would create a data type person age two. Okay. So that's like your basic type. Okay. You can also have a, a, or a higher order type, like maybe, maybe A, doesn't matter what the A is, it can be just A or it can be nothing. So, you, so that's a parameterized type. So types are giving shape to data, sure. basically. It's like I, I have the following data in my system and I want to describe it for you. You're declaring the structure of things. Of the, of the data. Of in the, the data in the system, system right. Hmm. And I mean, uh, everything has a type. So functions take one type and, and return another. And that sort of compound thing is a data type itself. So, you know, A to B is, da is, a, is a type, a hmm. function that takes an A and returns a B. So it sort of lets you describe your entire system in terms of data types. Hmm. So you think of, well, I'm, I have data A, and I want to make it into B, and so I write a function that goes from that to that. Mm -hmm. And you think about your system in terms of these transformations between types? All of that aspect of your program can be verified by the compiler. So as much of your business logic that you can encode into the types, that's how much of your program can be automatically checked as correct by the compiler. Hmm. And it's a, a vast majority of it, which is nice. Mike, anything you want to add to that? Um, so one, one interesting thing you brought up is, okay, I have some data A, and I want to get to data B. How do I get there? In fact, there's a, there are two search engines that Haskell programmers use um, to where you can type in, like, string arrow int, and it'll show you all the methods, all the functions, sorry, all the functions that go from string to int. Hmm. And it's, it's super handy, super powerful. I use it all the time. That's, that's kind of cool. So you could kind of not really write a search engine like that for Ruby code, right? Right, right. And there are, um, in the Haskell IRC channel, which is another point that we should talk oh about because it's awesome, uh, there is a, uh, there's a button there that you can give it a, you give it an expression, like a, you give it a type, and it tells you the, the fastest way to get from, from A to B. Um, so it'll like, look up all the functions for you. If you give it something really complex, it'll look up all the functions, combine them, and show you, like, wow. here's one option. That's kind of cool. Try it out. So um, we are, uh, or at least I, but we all are, dynamic programmers. We use Ruby. We, we use a dynamic programming language. There's not a static type or a strong typing system in Ruby. Um, I think some of us were, feel a little bit uh, skeptical of type systems, maybe because our, f our main exposure to for most people is Java, right? So it's like, oh, no, I actually, I know static typing and it sucks because, you know, Java was a pain and I felt like I was doing a lot of redundant blah, blah, blah. Uh, is is the, the Haskell type system substantially better than Java's, for example? Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, think there's, <laughs> I think there's two main reasons why people are scared of it. And the first is because they think that it's limiting um, because, you know, maybe Java's type system isn't as expressive as Haskell's. So I don't think that Haskell's is limiting. And also because in a language like Java, you have to tell the compiler, what everything is. And like, you feel like you're working with a two-year-old, like this is a person, 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 new person. Like, it's just silly. Whereas in Haskell, it has type inference. So you just write your functions and the compiler will figure out what all the types are and then ensure that they're correct. Hmm. And you don't have to tell it. You rarely have to tell it what the types of anything is. Hmm. I thought that you defined your program in terms of what... Well, you define the types. Yeah. But then when you write a function, it will know based on what functions that function calls, what types it takes, and what types it returns. Hmm. And then it'll just 
piece them all together like a jigsaw puzzle and make sure it all lines up. But more than that, type, since types are so important in Haskell, they are raised into a first-class thought. And so it, when I'm experimenting in the, in the Haskell shell, in the, the uh, GHCI, I might define some, some quick functions and then check the type of them and see what that is. And then um, maybe I'll start with a type and see how I can get a function to it. And it, it's just very, it's very playful, the way that we deal with types in Haskell. Um, it's more interactive and it's less pushed onto us. It's more something that we, we can play with. So talk about the Haskell IRC channel, Mike. So uh, Pound Haskell on Freenode. Um, there's tons of people there. Uh, I think last I looked, there was three in the thousands. Uh, three. There were three people there. But thousands of feet of neck beard. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They all have a full, full gray beard, uh, and they're of working course. on their, their thesis. No, it's actually a very friendly group of people uh, is, is the best part of it. And so if you go in with a question at any level, so if you're like a total beginner, you can go in with a very, very obvious, very beginner question. Or if you are writing some crazy PhD on types that no one's heard of, um, you can go in and talk about it. And there's always someone there who's willing to help and willing to talk. Um, and just the, the overall theme is more friendly than every IRC channel in existence. That's great. That, cause, because that was one of my questions was how the community is in Haskell. It's the friendliest community I've ever seen. That, that makes such a huge difference. I think especially when you have a, a, a slightly less popular thing, if you ha if you're a bunch of jerks about it, it's like such a turnoff to people. Like I think you, there's the there's a, the phrase "smug lisp weenie" as like a standard part of the lexicon to describe Lisp programmers, but uh, and that just doesn't help. Maybe it's, it could be part of the problem that kept Lisp from ever working as a mainstream language. I'm going to be interested to see how the community changes. I think lately the language has been getting more popular than it was before. I mean, originally, what was the slogan? Avoid success at all costs. They didn't really promote themselves. Um, and now we have things like FP Complete, uh, which is raising awareness. And, and What is that? Um, Mike mentioned it earlier, so maybe he can give a synopsis of FP Complete. I believe they're a company making money uh, on Haskell Consulting and products. There's a collaboration between a bunch of the major Haskell companies, including FP Complete, who, and they donate money and raise awareness and donate marketing money, for example. And they make sure the servers keep running and things like that. They're currently working on an IDE for Haskell. Um, that's their first, I think, I think it's their first major sort of consumer offering, so to speak. Um, it looks pretty interesting. I played with it for a minute. Um, it seems very tied to Yesode. Uh, the developer of Yesode, Michael Snoyman, I think, um, is on FP Complete. And so they have this uh, in-web IDE where you can write some web code in Haskell and then automatically deploy it and see your page all sort of in the cloud, very kind of Nitrous IO-ish situation. Looks pretty cool. Do you think, would you be interested in that IDU over something like Vim? No. Okay. I'm too, I'm too into Vim. I, I couldn't do anything else. Yeah, I'm sure Mike is too. Uh, so one of the cool things that I envy a bit from Haskell is Quick Check. You guys want to talk about that a little bit? Sure. Uh, so Quick Check is a... Um, it is a testing framework, um, but it's it's not based on test unit. It's based on kind of fuzz check fuzz check testing, fuzz testing, where uh, so you tell it here is my function, 
it, it should behave, it should follow these properties. So for example, the addition function has the property that if you add anything to zero, the result should be that anything. So x plus zero should be x, right? And so you can express that in quick check and it will test that x plus zero is equal to x uh, for all x. And similarly, like another very simple example is multiplication. Anything x times zero should be zero, right? That's a very easy one and it, it runs through that. Um, and then you can build this up to large, complex things. A common thing to do in Haskell is to, the, to talk about, or in the Haskell culture, is to talk about um, properties of functions and relations between functions. If we ever talk about monads, uh, there are relations between those functions. And, uh, and you can define those, you can describe those relations within QuickCheck. My impression was you sort of talk at a higher level about how the function is supposed to work and things that are supposed to be true about the function. And then quick check throws, you know, a hundred or a thousand different values at it and make sure that it's those stay true all the time. Yep. And it's, so it's kind of a good way of maybe catching that, hey, you missed a, a boundary case or a corner case. That's right. But it's still it still is testing. So it still has all the caveats of, you know, it's up to the programmer to know that those cases should be those edge cases should be in that range. And I found it uh, tricky for fixing bugs. Uh, so if someone reports a bug with a specific input, I'll just make a regular test unit test for that specific input. Um, it's more interesting for, okay, so now I've figured out, like, this bug is caused for this range of inputs. Now I'll make a quick check for those, that range or that kind, that class of data. I was talking to uh, Reed Draper, who works at Basho. That they make a React, the React database. And there's apparently a quick check. There's something similar to quick check for Erlang. And he says it actually catches all kinds of bugs for them, this fuzz testing. And so they, like, like you, they use unit testing, which they drive out explicitly. But then they also, you know, when they do their long test run, they run a, a bunch of this, like, fuzz testing. And, and apparently is very successful for them. So, Mike, uh, the first time I uh, bumped into you using Haskell was at our first Vim meetup in Boston. Yeah. So you had promised that you were going to write uh, Conway's Game of Life in Vim script for the meetup. And the way you did this was the first thing you did was write it in Haskell and then translate that into Vim script. That's right. Uh, that was really fun. So Conway's Game of Life, very briefly, it's, a, it's not a game in the, like, Quake kind of game, but it's a mathematical game. Uh, where you have uh, cells that exist on a grid and the cell lives or dies based on its neighbors. So if it has two neighbors, it lives. If it has five neighbors, it dies. Rules like that. And those rules can be modified for different variants. This game is, is very mathematical in nature and Haskell lends itself to math very well. And so uh, when I was thinking about it and thinking about it in VimScript, I was thinking in terms of Haskell. When I ran into a blocker, I just put the VimScript aside and wrote the whole thing in Haskell. And it was actually very straightforward, very clean, very fun. So then I rewrote it in VimScript. It was a straight port from the, uh, from the Haskell to VimScript. And it was actually shorter in VimScript. Things like printing out to the screen and managing a grid on my screen was just easier with the Vim buffer. And then there were some functions. There was one that would count the number of elements in a list, and that exists in VimScript, but it doesn't exist in Haskell. So that, like, that shortened it by two lines. It seems like 
also that this sort of problem is a great fit for has the way of thinking of Haskell, like functional programming in general, because you have this input that is the game board as it exists, and then the functions operate on that to produce an output of the next game board. And there's a very natural cycle for this, um, where you generate the screen by uh, you generate the grid by by running the function over some initial grid, and then you generate the next grid by feeding that grid back into it, right? And this is how random number generators work. Um, this is a very high-level view of how uh, how game engines work, um, and uh, and it lends itself very naturally to Haskell. So, uh, is there a good package manager for Haskell? There is. Yeah. Well, yeah. So, good is a relative term. Mm-hmm. Um, Mike might know what I'm talking about. Cabal hell. Yeah. Uh, but there's a package manager called Cabal, uh, which downloads downloads packages from a site called Hackage, which is the general sort of you know, picture Ruby gems, mm-hmm. um, and it handles dependencies and and all of that fun stuff. So, some some distributions will choose to repackage Haskell code themselves and distribute them as system packages, which I think is fine if you're using one or two packages, maybe. Um, but once you start developing, then you definitely want to use Cabal. Okay, so I can bundle install in Haskell as well. I don't know if you can bundle install. I mean, you know the equivalent. Yeah. Translate for me. Yeah. Okay. That sounds good. So what are the weaknesses? Why wouldn't I want to use Haskell? Or what do you, what do you dislike about it? I mean, the learning curve is definitely tough because you're, you're sort of retraining your brain if, you came, if you're coming at it with knowledge of a different language already. Um, things are definitely harder. Um, things that should be easy can be harder because I.O. is hard. Reading files requires a little bit more cognitive overhead and printing and things like that. Um, so if you're doing sort of shell scripty stuff, you might want to avoid it. Mm-hmm. Um, but for large applications or, or you know actual programs, I I like it. I don't I don't think there are very many downsides for me personally. Mike, I feel the opposite. Uh, <laughs> in fact, I think of Haskell as a type safe shell scripting language. Um, so the the biggest weaknesses I see are. The package manager, um, there's the Cabal Hell thing that he mentioned where if you have a lot of packages due to some low-level optimizations years back, it's easy to get them out of sync and get them not to work correctly. Uh, and that's a whole other topic. And then uh, the lazy evaluation is a cool idea, but it leads to memory leaks, and they're very hard to track down. Um, and in fact, the way to solve a lot of memory leaks is to get rid of the lazy evaluation. And so with, with those two things combined, larger projects are actually somewhat tricky uh, because you, you have to deal with the memory leaks. And there's no amazing tools for tracking. So, uh, Pat, you said that some of the things that annoy you about Haskell are like doing I.O., things like that. Uh, do you think that is that is I.O. hard in Haskell because it really should be hard because it's a messy and complicated problem? Or is it like a weakness of the language? No, yeah, I don't think it's a weakness of the language. And I wouldn't say that it annoys me. I would say that for someone evaluating Haskell as a as a possible language to learn, you should be prepared that IO works a little bit differently. And I think you do raise a good point that it is it is a hard problem and and this is, you know, the IO monad is how Haskell chose to solve it and it sort of directs you in a particular way. Mm. And I'm okay with it. You agree with that, Mike? Yeah. Um I think it's I think IO is done very differently in Haskell than in other um languages. But 
I, I think it's better to compare the way I.O. is done in Haskell to the way MVC is done, um, in that you have this strong separation between different layers. And just like we don't have database code in our views, you also don't have computation code in your I.O. Um, and you certainly don't have I.O. in your computation code. Right? And I think, I think that's a better perspective on it. Like lots of people are, are looking for the print statement without thinking about the big picture of what's really happening. I think it's I think it's unfortunate that people who get started into Haskell that IO is the first monad that they come across. Um, because the you know the monad concept itself isn't super complicated and I say that as someone who might not understand it fully myself. Um, but it's really just a way to chain dependent computations and to chain computations that may fail. And lots of things are monads. State is a monad, maybe is a monad and if you were to learn those simpler monads first, I don't think you would be very shocked when you come across some I.O. Because it's just using that system to do something. I sat down with uh, someone and learned a little Haskell. And when we hit monads, um, or monads as they're sometimes known. Sorry, that's my fault. It's all right. Um, we, it basically took, like, we were derailed for like 40 minutes as I was like, as we just kind of... <laughs> walked through that and it was definitely a little bit of a, a mind bender yeah but i think we started with io so oh well maybe bad teaching style i think you should start with maybe which is my favorite monad uh it's very simple it's not the simplest of course but it's very simple and it's very clear why you want it can you give us a 30 second view of that yeah totally so maybe uh is a type that encapsulates nullable objects so it's either something or nothing um, you can think in Ruby in terms of either five or nil, right? And you run to this problem in Ruby where you have to chain a bunch of things together. So you chain a bunch of method calls, and somewhere in the middle, something can be nil. Um, so you have to have all these try statements, like, like you know, user dot try this dot try that dot try that. Um, and the maybe monad is uh, is their way of doing that, and so. If you have some maybe object, let's say you have a result from a from a JSON parse, and you want to let's say you want to grab the grab some element in the middle of it, you can use the the monadic bind operator to apply that function, uh, but only if it's something, only if it's not null, right? So that's all the maybe monad is. It's just really good syntax uh, for the try operator and for halting an operation if it you reach a point where it's null exactly right and if you have a null you, you just keep passing nulls through it does not error so uh what are good resources to, if if we've intrigued people and they want to start learning haskell i think the two biggest are learn you a haskell for great com, no spaces and the book uh real world haskell were, were my two favorite to get started with okay mike yeah that plus the rc channel that's good stuff all right, guys. Well, uh, thanks for coming by and uh, sharing your Haskell religion with us. It's awesome. Yeah, thank you. Cool. All right, so uh, if you'd like to access the show notes for this episode, you can go to thoughtbot.com slash podcast slash 58. Today's podcast was recorded by Mike Manor, edited by Igor Stolarski, and produced by Chad Pytel. Thanks for listening.